Women's Health Melbourne is an innovative, holistic fertility and women's health practice. We are world leaders in IVF and egg freezing and provide our patients with every opportunity to achieve their goals. Our hand-picked expert team provides the ultimate care experience for our patients. Reach us at womenshealthmelbourne.com.au and follow us at Women's Health Melbourne and at Dr Rayleigh Alou. knocked up today we're answering your questions about fertility and women's health here to answer your questions as always is dr raylia lu crei fertility specialist welcome raylia thank you hi let's go straight into these questions we've got some really good ones but i want to start off with our most asked question and i also want to tell everyone about the episode that came out on the first monday of october that covers this in more detail but the question in all forms is raylia Should I get the vaccine? I am trying to conceive. I'm pregnant in my first, second or third trimester. I'm breastfeeding. I'm postpartum. Should I get the vaccine in all of these stages? So I'll give you the short answer and then I'll give you the long answer. The short answer is yes. One word answer. (laughs) Thought it might be. (laughs) And the, the long answer is as follows. COVID is a very serious condition particularly for pregnant women. It's more serious for some of us than others, although there are no groups that are entirely safe. You can get sick from COVID, unexplainably sick, even if you have no risk factors, even if you're young. But that's the minority of people who get very sick with COVID. And in general, as as a vast generalisation, older people, people with medical conditions, people who are immunocompromised are more vulnerable than others. Although for some reason that we don't really know Sometimes a young person can be struck down with very severe disease. Pregnant women, on the other hand, are a very vulnerable, very vulnerable group, just like old people are, just like immunocompromised people are. And around the world, we've seen very severe disease in pregnant women, which has compromised survival of mothers, has compromised survival of babies, and has compromised the general short and long-term health of both mothers and babies. And what we've seen around the world is a devastating number of young pregnant mothers who have died from COVID and a a devastating number of families who've been terribly impacted by not only death but also disability, short and long-term hospital admission from COVID. So as a pregnant person, you are at risk. As a woman trying to conceive Conversely, the vaccine does not put you at risk of any serious side effects compared to anybody else getting a vaccination. We think the vaccination is very, very safe. It has no negative impacts on fertility. You may have heard in the media, on social media, through other channels, some myths that have been spread about COVID affecting fertility. They are not true. Uh, No adverse effects on fertility have been observed from COVID vaccination. No adverse effects on fertility uh, have been observed uh, in terms of miscarriages associated with people who've had COVID vaccination. So we also know from experience, world-lived experience, not clinical trials, world-lived experience of now more than 6 billion 
not million, 6 billion people vaccinated worldwide, including millions of pregnant women at all stages of pregnancy, that we have no concern about the effects of COVID vaccination itself on a pregnancy in any detrimental form at any stage. So the long answer is also yes, get vaccinated. It is the only thing you can do to protect yourself, families of people who are trying to conceive and people who are pregnant also get vaccinated. It is the only thing you can do to protect your partner, uh, your daughter, your niece, your cousin, your friend, uh, and it is the best thing you can do. Well, that might be it. So everyone go and get vaccinated. Next question, preparing to conceive, what are some things that you can do to improve your chances? So, look, I think preparing to conceive, things you can do to improve your mental health is to understand a little bit of biology around conception and know that it's quite normal not to get pregnant the first time you try necessarily and know that the chance of getting pregnant per month if you're young, fit, healthy, well, do everything right, have not a vice in the world, don't smoke a cigarette, don't eat a chip or any other kind of junk food, don't expose yourself to toxins. This sounds like a sad existence. Yeah, so your your chance of getting pregnant per month at best is going to be one in five. So don't give yourself too hard a time if it doesn't happen straight away. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you. The best advice for trying to conceive is kind of divided into several categories. I suppose one is diet and lifestyle, wellness, health, and just be healthy. Just be healthy. Don't do anything bad in terms of introducing toxins to your body and, you know, try and be fit and healthy and well. In terms of optimising your chances of conception, make sure you have sex at the right time to get pregnant. Make sure you know when you're ovulating and you're trying to conceive around that time uh, and making sure that, you know, sperm and egg are getting together and have a chance to be in the same building at the same time. So, you know, that's really important. And, you know, that's really all there is to it, I think, in terms of what you can do naturally. And if your egg freezing, is the advice similar? Yeah, absolutely. And just remember, every egg has been with you for every moment of your life. So, you know, we can impact your environment at the time, your body's environment around the time of trying to um, prepare for egg freezing. Just like we advise for women trying to conceive, you know, having good replete nutrition is important and we often recommend a supplement. In individual cases, there are certain things from a medical perspective I might prescribe to try and optimise your numbers of eggs collected a few months down the track, but that's on a person-to-person basis and would be decided based on their presentation and based on their medical investigations looking at their ovarian reserve and, of course, their age. So having an individual consultation a few months before you proceed to treatment will allow you to have a plan to optimise your outcomes from a cycle. Uh, Most women who freeze eggs do need to do more than one cycle. The only women who, in my experience, do incredibly well with one cycle of egg freezing, um, capturing the number of eggs available in a single month, are those who do it prospectively when they are young so that they still got a heap of eggs and the eggs there are great quality. So, you know, tips for egg freezing is don't leave it to the last minute if you want to create a terrific resource for yourself and have an unbelievable outcome from a single cycle. Start thinking about it really as young as practical because that's when you're going to be able to achieve those goals. And what about improving sperm? 
So sperm's a little bit different from eggs in that men make sperm every day of their lives and their general health affects sperm production. And think about sperm like a bit of a canary in the mine shaft when it comes to general health conditions. We do see men who suffer from medical ailments have worse quality sperm. Sperm also does deteriorate in a way that is not modifiable as we age, just like all our cells are, are deteriorating as we age. But that is more subtle for men because they are still producing new sperm every day. There will be some defects in sperm that cannot be corrected no matter how hard a man tries through diet and lifestyle. There are some serious problems that happen that are more of a genetic nature. But what we can do, even in the context of those problems, is optimise the modifiable factors, the things that we can change, the environment of sperm production. So things like making sure we have a healthy diet, uh, including antioxidants and we can take antioxidants as supplements and make sure that we are intaking all the important building blocks for making healthy sperm um, is something we can do and we can also treat underlying conditions that are reversible things like varicose veins of the scrotum that might impair temperature regulation uh, can be treated and, and after treatment can improve sperm quality so that again requires examination and an individual assessment by a doctor and it's not a DIY do it yourself at home solution <laughs> but those kind of things can improve sperm quality as well and we also look at the medications that men may be taking and maybe rationalize some of them um, obviously men take medications for all kinds of reasons and some of them are non-negotiable but we know things like antidepressants for example can affect sperm quality we know things like some of the drugs that men use to hormonally reduce their hair loss can affect sperm quality as men um, kind of combat age-related male pattern hair loss Sometimes some of the anti-androgen therapies can affect sperm quality adversely and it might be something uh, to think about or discuss whether taking a holiday from those medications is, reverse, is, is negotiable. And certainly men can also take other substances like tobacco, smoking, um, party drugs that can affect sperm quality as well, as can alcohol in, in high volume. So, you know, all of these lifestyle changes can over time affect sperm quality. It's important to realise that when it comes to sperm, what you did the night before did not affect your sperm quality and to have meaningful impact, you have to have a good behaviour bond of at least three months um, to see changes validated on a semen analysis. What about the impact of intense exercise on fertility and what is the right amount of exercise to be doing? So the right amount of exercise is going to be individual and different for different people and how much exercise affects you or I will depend on our underlying fitness levels and what we're used to. Uh, but as a generalisation, extreme exercise can shut down reproductive systems in both men and women and it's quite normal actually for elite athletes to lose their periods. Uh, the body perceives extreme exercise as stress and sperm production can also be hampered in, in context of extreme exercise. So men do see that too. Uh, I would say that, you know, a normal amount of exercise is, you know, kind of 30 minutes every day walking um, plus maybe a couple of times a week more intense exercise. You know, if you're running 10 kilometres every day, that's probably a bit excessive when you're trying to get pregnant. Um, but if you're having regular periods and you're used to that because you've been doing it your whole life, then it's probably not an issue. So it, it really does come down to the individual and I think it's reasonable to continue what you're doing if you have a regular menstrual cycle from the female point of view because that's a sign that your body's coping well. If you're trying to conceive after miscarriage, 
how do you look after yourself and how do you know you're ready, both mentally and physically? So look, mentally it's very personal and sometimes women have the instinct when they lose a a baby, when they lose a pregnancy, that they just want to get another pregnancy and they just want to start again as soon as possible. And in my experience, that's not necessarily the right thing because while they feel that way in the moment, it means that they don't take time to grieve what's happened to them and they don't really fill up their tank of resilience to move forward. There's no guarantee of a definite rosy outcome in the next attempt. And what we need is to have that resilience to fall back on in case we do get a double blow or in case things don't happen as quickly as we want them to, uh, just to provide that ability to bounce back and keep going. Because in my opinion, resilience is the probably most important quality in having success when you're facing any kind of fertility problems because, you know, while we can do our best to combat problems, sometimes we can reverse them entirely and that's very positive. But most of the time we have solutions that partially improve things, hopefully to get you over the line and don't actually reverse completely any underlying pathology that you're facing. We cannot divorce fertility treatments from the natural history of pregnancy, which can be cruel. You know, a lot of pregnancies fail in healthy, fertile people, at least one in five pregnancies. And if you're over 40, that goes to one in two. Not to be too much of a downer, but sadness and heartbreak is part of the fertility story, as is happiness and joy. And they're just different chapters of the same story. So looking after yourself from a mental health perspective and making sure that you are ready to cope with whatever the world throws at you next time is really important. And I think giving yourself time to grieve a pregnancy and to and to move forward is actually very helpful. In terms of physical resilience and physical ability to conceive again, you can conceive in this in the cycle after a miscarriage potentially. And there are myths out there saying it's it's best to wait and there are myths out there saying it's superior to proceed immediately after a miscarriage because you're more fertile. Both of those are not true from a physical perspective. Next time you try is an attempt and once your body resolves the pregnancy and you ovulate again, your chance goes back to baseline. So what I would say is the physical is much more predictable and I guess universal than the mental. And the mental comes down to the individual, how they feel, what supports they have around them, what they've experienced in the past and what their outlook is for the future. And I think it's always very reasonable to consider having some mental health support from a professional counsellor, psychologist or even psychiatrist if you have underlying issues with anxiety and depression. What could be the cause of spotting in early pregnancy? This comes from a listener who is six weeks pregnant and has been spotting since she found out she was pregnant. So there's lots of different causes of spotting in early pregnancy, not just one. Some are completely benign and others are serious. And the context of the pregnancy, whether it's an artificially supported pregnancy in an IVF context, is actually different from a natural pregnancy. In the first part of a pregnancy, in the early first trimester, What's happening is that the pregnancy is gaining hormonal support still from the ovary. 
And in an artificial cycle where we give medications in IVF and the ovary doesn't get involved, it's actually supported fully by those medications. So a concerning issue that could be associated with spotting in, in early pregnancy is inadequate progesterone support or luteal phase deficiency. And that's something we always worry about and something that we check. So always if, if someone presents with bleeding in early pregnancy, one thing I will always do is a progesterone level and just make sure that it's adequate and we can always supplement it if it isn't adequate. We like progesterone levels to be at least 40 units per litre in the Australian units and um, and if it's above that, we're generally quite happy that it's adequate and, and it's often much higher than that but that's kind of a bare minimum approach in an IVF context. In terms of other reasons, you can spot not from the pregnancy but from your cervix. The hormones of pregnancy can cause fragility of what's called the cervical ectropion and some women do spot from the external cervix and that can be precipitated and it's sometimes scary when this happens with contact to the cervix either from sex or from an ultrasound. Um, so that can happen. Another worrying cause of um, bleeding in a, in a pregnancy is from bleeding around the placenta which can be substantial and visible on ultrasound or it can be very minor and you've got to remember that a placenta if you, if you compare a placenta to other tissues in the body, it's actually most like a cancer. I know that sounds very scary, but its job is to invade across tissue planes and create a union of blood vessels between the mother and the baby. And there's not, nothing else like a placenta. It's an incredible organ and it's an endocrine organ and it's also a vascular organ. And what the placenta needs to do is find a blood supply and burrow into the mother's blood supply and there's sometimes a bit of collateral damage with a bit of bleeding. And when you think about it, that's not surprising. So a little bit of bleeding in early pregnancy can just be due to that. What women worry about with bleeding in early pregnancy is could it herald a miscarriage? And sometimes it can. Sometimes a pregnancy is failing and it's what we call a missed miscarriage. And the way that we observe pregnancies is periodically with ultrasound. We don't look every day and so it's very fair and, and um, natural and normal that a woman might seek some reassurance that her pregnancy is hopefully okay and um, it's fine to go and see a doctor and ask to have an ultrasound to provide maternal reassurance in that context of bleeding in early pregnancy. The other thing that's really important to keep an eye on is women who have a negative blood group where their partner does not or their sperm donor does not. So the baby could possibly have a positive blood group. And if there's serious bleeding in pregnancy, particularly after 12 weeks, that might require giving something called anti-D to prevent the mother recognising baby's blood as foreign. So uh, anyone with a negative blood group, you can go to our Women's Health Melbourne website to our patient forms page there's a little menu at the bottom of our website with patient forms and you can read our anti-d information sheet um, which just educates you about things to worry about or have at least some knowledge about if you do have a negative blood group yourself how long before egg freezing should i stop taking the pill so there's a couple of different reasons to stop taking the pill before egg freezing one is to know when your cycle is coming in so that you have a natural cycle and two is to make sure, for your doctor to make sure that your hormones in your brain are back to normal because they're suppressed when you're taking the pill. The pill turns off your ovaries by turning off the signals to your ovaries from your brain, your hypothalamus and your pituitary gland. And we need those hormone secreting cells to be normally responsive in an egg freezing cycle because some of the medications we use to ensure that your eggs are available for collection, particularly the trigger medication, 
in an egg freezing cycle requires activity from those neurons in the brain and we need them to kind of be on guard and, and, and ready to respond. So one of the reasons we like you to stop the pill is so that your natural menstrual cycle resumes and that's an indication to your doctor that everything's working well and that you'll respond as we would want you to to the medications of an egg freezing cycle. The other reason is also to be able to counsel you uh, really realistically because some of the measures we use to predict how many eggs might be available in an egg freezing cycle are measures like your AMH test, anti-malarian hormone level, which is suppressed on the pill, and also the antral follicle count or ultrasound assessment checking how the ovaries are physically appearing in the early days of a natural menstrual cycle and, and that's also very difficult to accurately gauge on the pill when the ovaries are fast asleep. So, you know, it, it's good for you to have stopped the pill for a couple of months before egg freezing in an ideal world. What do you need to do to track your cycles? It depends on the reason you want to track your cycle. For very many years, what people used to do is use a little diary and, and write the date they got their period in their diary. Now, most of us don't have a diary anymore. We've got a phone and a lot of the times we have different applications on the phone that we can use to track cycles. It's like anything in science. The data you put in is the data you get out. So if you're not accurate and reliable in entering your data, then you're not going to have an accurate and reliable data reading summarising your cycles. If you find you have a very regular cycle, regular menstrual cycles can vary. They're not all 28 days and actually we say anywhere between a 21-day cycle and a 35-day cycle is normal and there's a big variation between women and at different stages of a woman's life as our ovarian reserve changes, our cycle length changes too. Often it gets shorter. But in terms of tracking your cycle, you've got to really think, well, why do I want to track my cycle? Is it so I know when I'm going to get my period so I can not wear white pants? Or is it so I can get pregnant so I know when I'm ovulating? And the importance of that is different for different people. If you're trying to track your cycle to get pregnant, I would say don't obsess about it. It's good if you've got a regular cycle to have some idea when you're ovulating, but you don't have to have sex on the exact time and the exact minute that you ovulate to get pregnant. Sperm can stick around in the female body for quite some time. So as long as you're having sex fairly regularly in the week leading up to your ovulation, every couple of days, you don't have to track it down to the day. In terms of trying to track your cycle, if you have an irregular cycle, um, that can be very challenging and difficult if you try and do it by the calendar because it doesn't play by those rules. And you're actually much better off tracking your physical signs of your body and trying to tune into the physical signs of your body and having some idea when you're going to ovulate by watching things like cervical mucus changes, um, checking in on your own physical arousal and the way your body's feeling hormonally because you can often have some insight by registering those things. Uh, some people track their body temperature. The, the difficulty there is it's absolutely of no assistance when trying to conceive because by the time your temperature has risen, you've already ovulated and by about 24 hours and, and you can't get pregnant anymore. So while it's a terrific kind of thing to know about if you're trying not to get pregnant and you want to only have sex after your temperature has actually risen and you're kind of in your safe zone, it's not that useful when you're trying to get pregnant at all to track your temperature. So it's a little bit of, of, a, of a myth there. In terms of women who are having such irregular cycles that they are just so frustrated and have no idea when they're ovulating and not having a period every two months or every three months, uh, tracking your cycle is useless. Go see a doctor. 
because you're going to have some investigation to figure out the reasons that your period is so irregular and there'll be able to be some targeted measures to try and regulate it for you and then it might be useful to track your cycle. Can polyps cause infertility? And for me, what is a polyp? So a polyp is a benign tumour of any tissue and in terms of gynaecology, the most common place to have polyps is in the cervical canal or in the uterus itself of the endometrium. And a polyp is is like kind of tissue behaving badly. It's a, a little benign area that's growing autonomously and not shedding when you get your period. And it's a space-occupying lesion and you can have tiny polyps and you can have really big polyps. And a tiny polyp is probably not such a big deal and a really big polyp can affect whether an embryo will implant There have been studies looking at polyps in women who've tried to conceive, randomising women into either when a polyp is found on ultrasound, remove it or observe and continue. And we know that we get more pregnancies when we remove polyps. So generally when I find a polyp as a fertility specialist, I recommend removal uh, because we know that in general a population of women who don't have polyps get pregnant more easily than a population who do. And can they cause infertility? So if a lesion stops you from getting pregnant, then technically that's causing infertility. When is the best time to get an embryo transfer when you're breastfeeding? So that's an interesting question. As long as you're ovulating, you can get pregnant while you're breastfeeding. But prolactin is a hormone that can affect the endometrium. And some women won't ovulate and won't grow a nice endometrium while they're breastfeeding. It depends on many other things. I guess how nutritionally replete you are, how much breastfeeding takes out of you. Uh, You'll know from experience of talking to many mothers that some women make far more milk than they need and can pump and leave supplies in the fridge so that, you know, in pre-COVID times they could go on a date and the baby could have express milk with a babysitter. Personally, I could never do that. Um, And while my babies were, you know, fat and healthy and breastfed, there was no expressing litres of milk. Um, So different people can produce different amounts of milk and the effort your body goes into producing it will depend on things like your breast tissue volume and um, that's widely variable. So for some people breastfeeding isn't an issue and for other people it really is. It takes a lot out of their body and they won't ovulate. So I I think this is a really important question for women who've had their first baby at an older age because they're really stressed about you know, having another child and not waiting too long and wanting a short interval between babies. Also women returning to work and wanting to kind of get some extra mileage out of maternity leave to be with their first child when they have their second. I was certainly in that situation too. In terms of getting back to planning another baby, I rarely recommend trying before six months after a baby's born. I think that's too soon for various reasons, not just hormonally but also physically in terms of recovery. Uh, We use up a lot of nutrients when we do have a baby physically and we do need to replenish them for the next healthy pregnancy to make sure things like we don't get anemic and, you know, that our babies aren't growth restricted because we can't supply them with the nutrition they need because we ourselves are, are depleted. So, look, that's important. I usually say come back and see me when your baby turns one. I think that's a nice balance. It also allows really good healing time if you have had an operative delivery like a caesarean. But 
it's not a it's not a deal breaker after between six months and a year. I usually say you know give it a year, and you know by the time your baby's one, they're usually having lots of solids, and breast milk is more for comfort at that point, and many women wean around or or even before that point, so it becomes a bit of a moot point if you wait that amount of time. And if you do feed beyond that amount of time, it's really more for comfort and enjoyment of both baby and mum. And that amount of breastfeeding generally doesn't impact your chances of getting pregnant with an embryo transfer. Last question for today. What are uncommon symptoms of PCOS? Uncommon symptoms of PCOS? That's a good question. Look, I don't know that there are – I can't really answer that question. Oh, we've stuck you. Yeah, you have, because I think PCOS is so common. I mean, one in 12 women have PCOS. Different people are uh, affected differently by their PCOS. I mean, some people are mainly troubled by irregular cycles and others do have, you know, worries about excess hair growth, acne, mood change, depression, uh, which is associated with PCOS and can also be associated with things like body image because carrying excess weight can be associated with PCOS, although it's not always things like having facial hair, things like having male pattern baldness or hair loss can be associated with PCOS. But all of these things are actually fairly, fairly common. So I can't really think of something that's associated with PCOS that's really uncommon. Can you, Geordie? No, I can't. It all seems from we've done many episodes on PCOS and it all seems quite straightforward. And also those guidelines are quite new as well. Yeah, the NHMRC combined guidelines, Jane Howell's guidelines are terrific on PCOS. They're freely available, published through Monash University, and I encourage anybody who has PCOS to take the time to read them. They are quite, I think, user-friendly, even without a medical education. In terms of PCOS, what I would say, it, it, it's easy to blame PCOS for lots of things that aren't necessarily PCOS, and obviously no condition exists in a vacuum. There's lots of things that are put down to PCOS that probably have nothing to do with PCOS as well. Uh, and I think that's quite common with medical conditions that are so frequently experienced in our society. I mean, one one thing about PCOS that I think is really powerful is that while genetics is definitely involved, lifestyle is a big factor. And we had a lot less clinical PCOS 30 years ago than we do now because as a population we're heavier and because we have more what we call diabetogenic foods. So, you know... Some people can actually take themselves out of the syndrome. They, they might have the genetic predisposition to have PCOS, but when they do lose weight, build muscle, eat healthy, they can actually lose their symptoms and actually take themselves out of meeting the definition criteria for PCOS, which is amazing. And I love having patients like that in our practice at Women's Health Melbourne because, you know, we see natural spontaneous conceptions happen in women who were really stressed that they would never get pregnant naturally with PCOS, it's one of the most fulfilling things to treat as a specialist in fertility. If, if it's a symptom that's, you know, really, really unusually associated with PCOS, it's probably not necessarily related to PCOS. It might just happen in someone with PCOS, I would say. Thank you, Raylia. Great answers. And thank you, listeners, for your questions. Thanks for all your questions. Thanks for being such a great group of listeners and responding on our social media to questions when we ask for them for these kind of episodes. It's really great to be able to address your specific 
concerns. Of course, any advice on our program is general in nature and doesn't replace individualised medical consultation with a specialist. I always do say when I get direct questions on my Instagram at Dr. Raylia Lou that I can't give particular specific medical advice for individuals over the Instagram platform because I don't have the whole picture. And, you know, to honour a patient with advice that is unique and specific to your situation, I really do need to have the whole picture of what's going on for you and also your partner and medical history uh, documented in front of me and the insight from different investigations as well. So uh, we can't give personalised advice either on Knocked Up or over Instagram, but hopefully we provide some knowledge and insight that is from a specialist medical source and um, also hopefully bust a few myths for you. Join us on Instagram at Knocked Up Podcast and at Dr. Raylia Lou, or email us your questions to podcast at womenshealthmelbourne.com.au.